the pleasure of continuing to walk through the book of Acts. We've been watching as the Holy Spirit has orchestrated some encounters, and here in Acts chapter 9, we get to see really none more clearly orchestrated than this. It is in some sense a bit of an interruption in the book of Acts. We've been following the expansion of the church, and then we get the mention of of Saul, the persecutor of the church, and then the, the mission is going to people through persecution. The church is scattered by persecution. God's using it. Saul is a key player in this. And now in chapter 9, we sort of step away from the expansion of the church and into the life of Saul. Now, what happens at his conversion? So we follow his conversion experience and immediate experience of ministry and walking in faithfulness. And then it goes back to the expansion of the church in which Saul, who became Paul, will be uh, reintegrated into the story. So I want you to go to Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19 is what we'll cover today. Acts 9, 1 through 19. Hear the word of the Lord. But Saul, still breathing threats, murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. At the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And as he seen as he and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose 
and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. Pray with me. Father, we come again confessing our total dependence upon you, so send your spirit to help us understand. Illuminate the word. Shine the light of your word on our hearts and minds, forever transforming us who believe into the likeness of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. What we have here is undoubtedly an extraordinary and unique conversion experience. And I want to give you this theme for today and then explain it for a moment. Conversion connects us to God's mission. The title, I guess we could say, a title for today, which I didn't put in the slide, the point of conversion, the point of conversion. And I I was trying to kind of play on words. This is the actual point in Paul's life. It's the point in the unfolding story of God for Paul's conversion, but there is a purpose. And that purpose is that God would now utilize those who have been converted and sending them on mission. It is the theme of the whole series, Acts, saved to be sent, saved to be sent. So consider this in the life of Paul. This is the real-time act of surrendering to Jesus, the real-time Jesus appears to him, but know that this plan has been worked out by God. He had already ordained this event and known that Saul, Paul, would be a key player in the advance of the gospel. So the theme, conversion connects us to God's mission. And as you can see from the theme, there are some things that I think we can, we can come away with from Saul, Paul's, I'm going to do that all day, uh, conversion. We can look at his conversion and then see the echo of that, uh, sort of a, a pattern, if you will, in the way that we come to know Jesus. Now, uniquely, you know, Paul gets to hear the word of Jesus directly from heaven. And there are some things about this that are simply descriptive and not prescriptive. So your conversion may look very different, but there is going to be some consistency with Paul's conversion here. So I want to talk about this in four parts. I'm talk about his conversion in four parts. And really, those four parts can be identified in your conversion as well. And maybe that would be your conversion today. First off, we see an intention. An intention. Verses 1 and 2 tells us that Saul was making his plans. He was strategizing as to how he might make the lives of Christians absolutely miserable, how he might eliminate them from this what he understands to be a perversion of the Jewish religion as he knew it. He sought official authorization to do this and and sought authorization to bring these people bound to Jerusalem. Just to give you an idea of how much he wanted to see Christianity eliminated, Damascus was a six-day journey on foot. So he's, he's wanting to go far and wide. Let me get as far as I can go to wherever these people have been scattered, and I am going to get rid of them. And so Saul sets out on a mission of persecution, but we see God already appointed a mission of conversion. 
It's funny how our rebellion against God may be filled with evil plans and wicked intentions of the heart, and then God changes those intentions in an instant. It's no problem at all for him. It is no match for him. And even as Christians, those of you who believe, do you see, like we fall into thinking that we're in control of our plans, don't we? This is why James writes to believers even and says, hey, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. He says, what is your life? We need that from time to time from the word. All the things that, that plague you right now, even that Sam mentioned earlier, all those things that plague you, take a step back and say, what is my life? James says, you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If the Lord wills. So you got plans tomorrow morning. You know, the only way that those plans are going to be fulfilled in any way is if God decides that you can wake up one more day. But it's funny how we make these plans, we have these intentions, and Paul's intentions were openly evil. Of course, he had convinced himself otherwise. We just don't want to be caught in that kind of boasting, that kind of arrogance, because as James says, all such boasting is evil. That arrogance is described as evil. Now, those of you who have yet to follow Christ, don't let yourself off the hook by thinking that your rebellion against God is somehow less evil, even less evil than Saul's. He hated Christians and sought to murder them, but in his mind, he did it because he loved God so much. Your rebellion is no different. If you're not outright rebelling against God, saying things like, I hate God, I don't want God, unless you're doing that, you're doing exactly what Saul did and creating a delusion to justify your own rebellion. To think that you have any chance at honoring God without submitting to the Lord Jesus is the height of deceptive rebellion. And so our only hope today is that you would meet Jesus. Maybe rather that Jesus would meet you on the road that is paved with your good intentions and show you the way of salvation. You might think it's just a lack of knowledge. You know, sometimes we in America, we tend to think that. And I want you to know, this is coming from somebody who's been highly educated, okay? Paul was the most educated person that could have existed in this time. We might tend to think, well, if we just know certain things and we're taught certain things, that we'll arrive at the truth. Paul had it all. Saul, he had it all. 
He had all the training of the Jews. But he was trained also in Greek culture, and then he also was a Roman citizen. He had the best of every world. He was a Pharisee who was trained, a Hellenist in his education, and then fully immersed in Roman society. So Saul, he towers over all of us in accomplishments, and so much so that he says in Philippians chapter 3, right before he says, all of this stuff is garbage next to knowing Jesus. Here's what he says. Philippians 3, verses 4 through 6. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul says at that point, he says, However much you thought you could keep the law, I kept it more. This is who he was. Don't believe the lie that we just need to educate people to Jesus. It's not the answer. We have to trust that the gospel will be that avenue that they come to see his glory and surrender to him. Now, a brief note here. I mentioned the way. Because you see, that's what Paul, that's what Saul is trying to do. It hurts me that there are two names that I got to use. He says right there, so that if he found, verse 2, any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, you may know this already, but there is a distinction that we must make here. The, the, the term, the way, was something that became a descriptive of Christians following Jesus. And I think it's appropriate because Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He talks about how there is a broad road that leads to destruction and there is a narrow way that leads to salvation. And Jesus is saying, I am that way. So Christians came to be known as people of the way. And maybe there's some application here broadly, culturally, societally. How does anybody know that we are on a different path than they are? What are they able to see? Can they look into our lives? Can they look upon the church and say, man, those people are different? I was talking to somebody this week and I was saying, like, one reason that I'm not a big fan personally, this is not this is not shade on anyone else. Kyle and I have decided a long time ago, we want to get away from live streaming the church. We want to get away from it because we want to hold this assembly as sacred so that people in the world can't just look upon the worship of the church and say, oh, I don't like that. I'm critiquing that. Can you believe that's what they say? Can you believe that's what they believe? We want to hold it as sacred. See, what we do together as a church is uniquely a part of the way of Christ. And in some sense, unbelievers among us ought to be a little uncomfortable. When they come around, like, what's wrong with these people? This is why all the goofiness of seeker-friendly church movements are not rooted in scripture. We are different. 
We are people of the way, not the way of the world, not the broad road. So the things that we do must look like that narrow road. But personally, it's either the way or it's your way. And maybe those of you who have believed, you look back upon the intentions of your life and you say, man, I was so misguided. I was so foolish. But God arrested me on that road and put me on the right road. He grabbed hold of me. Those of you here today who have not followed Jesus on the way, recognize that those are the options. You continue to go your own way with your good intentions. And we know, we know where that paved road ends. Or you can follow Jesus on the way. Four parts. The first part. There is an intention. There is an intention. We all have our intentions. And then, secondly, there is an intervention. Intervention. Verses 3 through 9. It says right there, on the way, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. Suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Jesus appears to Saul in a blinding light and leads Saul into these three things. These three, uh, I formed them as commands, but here's our application. First, recognize identity. Recognize identity. We're talking about the identity of Jesus here. Recognize Jesus for who he is. Now note here, before he gives the name, before he tells him his name, what does he do? He identifies with his people. Why are you persecuting me? Now, you may skip over that if you're reading scripture, just walking through it. It's of utmost importance that you see that Jesus says, you're persecuting people, those are my people, and for persecuting them, you are persecuting me. It's a truth worth much meditation and consideration that Jesus so identifies with his church that when we're persecuted, he feels it. When we struggle, he feels it. Jesus esteems the church so highly in this way, yet, y'all know this is one of my soapboxes and I'm going to take my opportunity. He esteems the church so highly, yet, Many professing Christians diminish the church's value, disregarding her as optional. And you know what they can do? They can tell you all kinds of things wrong with the church. They're too corporate. They're holier than thou. There's too much money wrapped up in that. There's too many hypocrites there. They're so judgmental, right? That's ironic. They're so judgmental. It's a social club. It's unnecessary. On, on, on. But hear me. (laughs) They're too coward to get in the trenches 
and do the work alongside Jesus to see the church sanctified, washed in the water of the word, without spot or wrinkle, holy and without blemish. You realize that's the future of the church? And you know what? It's messy. It's messy. So messy that Jesus had to spill all his blood on it. And yes, we are fraught with problems. You get any group of sinners together and you got problems. But I'm not too coward to work through those. You know, a brother told me this week, he said, being a part of a church will bring out the worst in you. That is the absolute truth. I think some people are scared to find out what is inside of them. And so they stay away. It's how you respond to those things that matters. And I've come to the conclusion, and I have to do it again every, every, every Saturday night. That laboring for the future glory of the church is worth it all. And then when I'm able to remember, and with the eyes of faith, look upon Jesus who poured out his blood to redeem the church, that value is easy to recognize. And then Sunday morning, it is my great joy to come and participate with you saints. Jesus calls us his body. You know what else he does? Calls us his bride. I don't know about you, but you talk bad about my wife. I'm going to get angry. I would be very careful to speak ill of Jesus' bride. And I imagine at the judgment seat of Christ, there'll be a flash of regret and embarrassment for all who do. Oh, we struggle, folks. The church struggles. We have problems. But thank God he turns those things around and redeems those struggles to make us the people who are without blemish, holy, sanctified unto him. You can call it a soapbox. You can call it taking my liberty there, and I'm going to do it every time. Jesus identifies with his church. And I think I could talk for hours and we still would not get the depth of that. Next, Jesus gives his name, but he doesn't let the previous idea go. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So he still is hanging on to the idea of being united with the people. At this point, the simple identification of the risen Jesus with those being persecuted seems enough of a revelation for Saul to take a moment and think about it. Not only are the people that he's killing right, but their savior is not dead. 
you consider what that means, except for this moment that coming face to face with the gospel truth, as Saul did right here, the recognition that Jesus is alive. He has to reckon with that and then recognize his identity. If he's alive, then these people are right, and Jesus is God. It's right here where we see the gospel displayed by Jesus. Now, you go through this text, and you don't hear about the death and resurrection of Jesus. Saul was well aware of the death of Jesus. He was well aware of what had been happening. And now for him to experience the risen Christ is the completion of the gospel for him. That Christ died, but he is resurrected. And now he has to recognize that identity. Secondly, under intervention, and more briefly, receive instruction. Recognize identity. Receive instruction. And this is what happens for all of us. You meet Jesus, you recognize who he is, and then you get some instructions here, and it unfolds more instruction later as we encounter Ananias. But right here, it's rise and enter the city. I'm going to tell you what you, you got to do. It's a simple instruction for Saul, yet knowing what this leads to with Ananias, it helps us to understand and relate it to the instructions for us when we encounter the revelation of Jesus. The instruction for us is surrender. Surrender to Jesus through repentance and faith. And isn't this exactly what Paul came away saying in his ministry? This is what I preach house to house. Repentance toward God, faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the core of his ministry. So receive instruction. Recognize identity. Receive instruction. And then thirdly, reflect inwardly. Reflect inwardly. For some of you, this happened in a moment. And you were hit with just how wretched you are when you saw Jesus and his glory. Commentators suggest that these few days of blindness were used by God to give, give Saul some time to reflect, for, for some reflection and introspection. You can imagine the things that are going through his head. It actually tells us right here that he was praying, undoubtedly wrestling with what had happened and considering what it meant for his life. His response to Christ's revelation was fasting. We know people fast when they need something. They need answers. They need a conclusion. They need an encounter with God. He fasted because this was so monumental. Now I want to be careful that we're not digging too much into Saul's mental state or drawing unfounded conclusions, but it's clear that he is wrestling. He is coming to grips with the truth. Paul Hill says this, he was completely broken, completely broken. It's normal, however, to respond this way. Do you recall the feeling of being broken over your sin when you came to know Jesus? Listen to the words of Isaiah 6. This is what happens when people see Jesus. In the year that King 
Uzziah died. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his faith. With two, he covered his feet. Two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That is the proper response to a sight of Jesus. And you're like, well, he didn't see Jesus. He saw God. Well, look in John 12 and you'll see he saw Jesus. Isaiah saw him and spoke of him. Folks, if you have not come to that conclusion where you can honestly say, woe is me. Have you really come to know God? His response, woe is me. This is what happened. As we've been learning on Wednesday nights, when you behold your God, you realize just how small, insignificant, sinful, unworthy you are. God's glorious revelation of himself uncovers all the things that were not true about, you hoped were not true about you. We love that darkness. And then he shines the light, causes us to reflect inwardly. You notice that all of this is incomprehensible to the people around Saul. Simply doesn't make sense to them. I think in some ways, this may be true in our conversion as well. When people see what is happening to us, they wonder, what is happening with him? What is happening with her? They are changing. They're different. Thirdly, third part, instrumentation. There's an intention, there's an intervention, and then there's instrumentation, verses 10 to 16. Y'all know full well that I'm a wannabe musician. I can kind of look like I know what I'm doing. One thing I love about music is instrumentation bringing different sounds, meshing them all together. And when I listen to artists, that's what I want to hear. I like hearing that variety in music. And I hope you can see from this text that there is variety in the instrumentation that God uses. So yes, Jesus personally stepped in and appeared to Saul in his calling to salvation and calling to apostolic ministry. However, God uses a variety of instruments to accomplish his will. 
So I hope we can see a couple of takeaways. First off, there is someone sent. We encounter this person that will minister to us with the gospel, someone who will corroborate the truth of the gospel by their words or by their lives and by their role in our lives. And for Saul, it was Ananias. God prepared and sent, he, he commissioned Ananias and then instructed Saul so that they would meet. Notice Ananias' readiness. Ananias, here I am, Lord. You, you may recall two great servants from the Old Testament, Abraham and Samuel, responded in the same way. Now he told Ananias Saul's exact location on the straight street. That's a street that's still visible and used today. But his readiness, note this, his readiness was not without hesitation. Ananias knew of Saul and wondered how it could be him. Are you sure, God? We can totally understand his desire to double-check that. Either way, what we find out is he obeyed. Come back to that in a moment. Ananias, verses 17 and 18, embraced his commission. He met Saul. He laid hands on him, allowing him to recover his sight, receive the Holy Spirit. A beautiful picture of what happens when the Holy Spirit regenerates us. Ananias represents, however, the person or the persons in our lives that God used to bring us unto himself. Those faithful saints that either shared the gospel with us or confirmed or corroborated the gospel by the way they lived their lives. Ananias was an instrument in the hands of God. Now that someone that God sent to you is an instrument in his, in his hands as well. And here's where we see some of the variety. Our Ananiases are not all the same person. They're not even all the same type of people. They're vastly different, vastly different and gifted, uniquely gifted. And they met us in our most critically important moments by God's design. God orchestrated this. Now, I wonder if maybe we could spend a few minutes tonight, shepherding group, maybe some of us could talk about our Ananias. Who is the Ananias in your life? Who is the Ananias in your life? You leaders remember that because I'm going to forget. Ananias was someone sent. God sent you someone. But there's another takeaway. You are the someone sent for somebody else. You are sent to someone. So there's someone sent, that's the Ananias role, and then we see that we are sent to someone. And we could turn around and use Ananias again. Ananias' hesitancy may be a good point of application for us. For Ananias, it was shock, absolute shock, that someone like Saul of Tarsus, the great persecutor of the church, could be saved. And I guarantee you there's somebody in your life that you are tempted to believe is unsavable that their heart cannot change. Dismiss that notion right now and start mentioning their name before the throne of grace as much as possible. Plead with God to do it, believing he can, and then be ready. Consider yourself sent to them. 
Furthermore, there's variety in our being sent. You don't have to have the gift of evangelism to see people saved. You don't have to have unique skills in evangelism or disciple making to see people saved. God has equipped the church in a variety of ways. I so appreciate what Mark prayed earlier. That's exactly what it is. So you don't have room to make excuses about your lack of participation on mission. Just be ready and be faithful so that when a lost person lands in your lap, could be the eunuch, could be that person at the coffee shop. Sometimes God literally puts people in your lap so you can share the gospel with them, if you can see it. And when that person lands in your lap, you can confidently minister in the way that God has equipped you. God's plans for Saul also reveal our sentness. And I'm trying to move quickly here. We are saved to be sent. It's the theme of our series. This is what he says to Ananias. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So you see, Paul's ministry was ordained by God beforehand. You ever considered the fact that while you're working through what you need to do with your life and the, the who to whom you're sent, the who of your sentness, that God has these plans already set as he forms you in the womb? Nothing of his will can be thwarted. God chose to use this persecutor of the church to be his mouthpiece to the nations, and God chose you, appointed you, equipped you to be the mouthpiece to someone. You are sent to someone. Here are the questions. Who is it? Who is it? Are you going to them? As you go, make disciples. Are you going to them? Why are you waiting? Why are you waiting? There is instrumentation. Finally, there is initiation. There's an intention. There's an intervention. There's instrumentation and there's initiation. Verses 17 to 19. Ananias did what he was supposed to do. At this point, we see the giving of the Holy Spirit. Note this, prior to baptism, but still closely associated with it. The scales that fell, fell from, from Saul's eyes symbolize the work that's happening in the heart of the new believer as the Holy Spirit breathes the breath of life into them. It is regeneration. It is being born again, born from above, John 3. Given spiritual life, given spiritual sight, given new desires and new ambitions. The Holy Spirit is essential to the initiation of a new believer. We were promised by Jesus to have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And that promise in this moment was fulfilled in Saul. So the scales fall off. The Holy Spirit resides in him. He can see. Then Saul rose and was baptized. His conversion was complete. The presence of the Holy Spirit and baptism 
evidence the initial and unbreakable union of a believer with Christ. Here, Ephesians 1.13, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Not only are you now bound to Christ, united with him, believer, but listen to this, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So by this act of baptism, it wasn't just you and Jesus. By this act of baptism, you are bound to the people of God. And so Saul, through his baptism, the great persecutor of the church is now eternally tied to these people, some of whom he murdered. Wow. Paul receives this initiation. Now, I think it's interesting in this account. I don't really have any reason for bringing this up, but I think it's interesting. It's interesting that there is no verbal profession. You know, when we baptize folks, we let them say something. You know, in Scripture, the clearest profession of faith is baptism. It is how you publicly identify with Jesus. Consider that and how Paul, in his own words, he tells us that a profession of faith is part of salvation. He writes, no one can say Jesus is Lord without the help of the Holy Spirit. He writes, with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now maybe there is someone that has yet to profess the Lord Jesus, has yet to be baptized, identifying with him. Would you come and tell us that so we can baptize you next week? Come and tell us that as we respond today. Now, some of us know we've been commissioned as well. You had your Damascus Road experience, but then you're still wondering, or maybe you're not wondering, unfortunately, to whom have I been sent? To whom have I been sent? So consider that commission, the great commission today, and how you, believer, may align yourself with the mission that God brought you into when you were converted. He saved you to send you. You are sent. Let's respond, repentance, faith. I'll be down front. Let's pray. God, help us now as we have heard your word and respond to it. Help us to correct our poor thoughts of you. Help us correct our misunderstandings of your word. Help us to understand really with our lives the word that we have heard today. Cause it to work itself out and how we live in obedience, how we worship you, how we make the gospel known, how we go to work, how we treat our families, how we treat our neighbors. God, help us. Help us to see things as you see them. And we know the only way we can do that is to see you 
in the revelation of your son. So show us your son. Show us his face. By faith, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me one more time? Are you weary and